couldn't quite grasp how his uncle wasn't, in fact, everyone's uncle. Okay? So he would think that his uncle Mitch should be everybody's uncle Mitch. You know, how is it that you're not uncle Mitch to everybody? Well, it's kind of the unique relation that the nephew has to uncle, and uncle has the nephew. And that identity as uncle is not everything that's wrapped up in what it means to be my friend Mitch. Mitch wasn't summarized, you know, or like identical with his uncleness, right? What it meant to be uncle is not the same as what it meant to be Mitch, not something like what it meant to be a squirrel or what it meant to exist, right? No, but I think we get the point. It's just that my friend was friend to me. He wasn't uncle to me, you know? Um, and the kid had a hard time understanding that. Now, if the kid had been talking about the Trinity, he would have been dead on, in a sense. Okay? See, he didn't understand how his relationship of uncle didn't mean that he was uncle of all, or wasn't identical with what it meant to be Mitch. But when we talk about relations in the Trinity, they are in fact identical with the who. Everything that the Father is, in terms of being Father, is wrapped up in his relation to the Son. And all that, you know, this is in terms of what's distinct about the Son, is wrapped up in his relationship to the Father. Okay? It'd be like if my friend Mitch was, in fact, uncle. He's not uncle. Right? That was a part of him. But we know that there are no parts in God. So when we, that's one of the reasons why it's important. So when we speak of the Trinity, and when we look at ways to understand it, we're always looking for two things. We're looking for identity, and we're looking for difference. And they would seemingly be opposites or contraries. But in God, as we found out in the very beginning, is not immune to these seeming contraries. He's always at rest. He's always active. Okay? He is one, and he is many. And how is this? Okay. Every attribute is identical to what he is, including relation. But relation is the one attribute that includes within it distinction. Right? Relation is the one attribute that includes within it distinction. To be relation includes being distinct. You're the something of something else. And so while relation itself, in the abstract, in a sense, is identical to what it means to be God, God's essence is relational. God's essence is communion. The fact that it is in relation includes within the distinction, that's exactly what we want to say about the Trinity. How do you get distinctions based on relation? And this is where our tradition, upon reflection in Scripture, comes to the notion of procession. 
that it's based on procession that you get distinctions of relations. The Father <coughs> generates the Son. The Son comes forth from the Father. Okay? And the Spirit <coughs> is breathed forth from the Father and the Son. Notice what we say in the Creed. Believe in the Holy Spirit. How's it go? Um, what is it? The Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. Yeah? So the way you get distinction in the Trinity is by an order of procession. One is from the other. Right? The Son is the Son of the Father. He comes from the Father. And the Spirit is the Spirit of the Father and the Son. He is breathed forth, spirits forth from the Father and the Son. So then, if one proceeds from another, how can they all be present at creation? Well, right, not just present at creation, but from all time. There's no temporality in this procession. It's rather an order of understanding. Yeah, like it's, it's an order um, of being, not an order in time. So the Father is the first person of the Trinity eternally generates the Son. In fact, He is Father only insofar as there is a Son. Right? And this happens even in natural gen generation. Huh? It's not just... I want to say, I just heard this the other day. Two well, I mean, especially in this relationship, two people are born. A son and a father. Huh? Right? The two are kind of wrapped up with one another. As it is in sort of our human nature, well, that's a kind of mirror of the way it is in the divine nature. And so each of the persons of the Trinity, then, we're looking for distinction. We got distinction in terms of relation. They're also identical, right? In terms of what they are. The Father is God. He is what it means to be God. He lacks nothing of what it means to be God. He is all there is to being God. I could say that about the Son. The Son is God. He is all there is to being God. He is identical with what it means to be God. The Holy Spirit is God. He is identical to what it means to be God. And so, the only distinction is that the Father is not the Son. And the Son is not the Father. The Father and the Son are not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father or the Son. Okay? So we end up with this, like, trinity of persons, and every image of the trinity is bad. <laughs> we're just working with spatial things that really aren't great. I can use, and it might be more helpful to explain how they're defective than how they're helpful. 
you've seen this before. Cymbeline flashes it on the screen if you ever watched Cymbeline before. And you get God, like, okay, the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is not the Father, okay? The Son is not the Father, the Father is not the Spirit, the Spirit is not the Son, okay? The problem with this image is it looks like the divine essence is some fourth thing. Okay? And why relation and processions are so helpful? Because here's the dilemma, right? How is it that two things are equal to a third thing are not equal to each other? Right? This seems to be a dilemma. If you have two things, and they are both equal to a third thing, you'd think that they would be equal to each other. Right? If I have one steak, I have another steak, and they're both the same size as this third steak, they should be the same size as each other. How is it that you can have this seemingly contrary instance where you have two things that are identical to a third? That's where it goes wrong, right? It's not a separate third thing. Okay. How is it that you have these two that are identical to a third but that aren't identical to each other? How is it that the Son is all there is to be God, the Father is all there is to be God, and yet the Father is not the Son? <laughs> what in the world? How do you get that? And relation gives that to you, right? And they understood that you get identity and difference uh, from relation. And the relation that they talk about is passion and action. Okay? It's a movement. You know, I take a swipe at Joe here. And I hit him. He gets hit. Right? It's the same action. The two movements of hitting and being hit are both identical to my actual punch. But they are not identical to each other. Right? He's the one that gets hit. And I'm just fine. He feels a lot worse. It actually hurts me a lot more than it hurts him. <laughs> right? Well, that's not true. No, but there you have it. Right? An action, a passion, both identical to the movement and not identical to each other. Relation establishes that. Huh? The Father is God. The Son is God. The, the whatness of being in relation, huh? relation, is identical to what it means to be God. God is relation. But that relation of the Father and the Son, they don't, they're not identical to each other. Is that understood? So how does this, how do you get this, right? Well, there are common analogies. There are also bad examples, okay? Every analogy falls short. Here's one that I hate. I hate the four-leaf, the three-leaf clover one, huh? Right? And then you've ever seen that, like, video of the uh, Irish um, uh, guys with, with uh, St. Patrick? And they go through all the heresies of Trinitarian theology. It's really, really funny. Find it on YouTube. Uh, it goes through all the problems, you know. And so, like, Patrick's example, you know, and it's good enough in itself, the three-leaf clover. It's like, one, two, three leaves on the clover. That's all the clover. It's like, one, two, three persons in God. All God, okay? Isn't that a nice example? No, not really. Right? Because the, each clover, excuse me, isn't all there is to the, the shamrock. Right? No, in fact, it's one part 
two parts, three parts. But we know that in God there are no parts. So the Father is not like part of God. Right? And the heresy that that exhibits is, in fact, partialism. Huh? Right? There are no parts in God. Okay. Another one that people really like is you have like um, gas, or no, sorry, H2O molecules. And you have three states of that molecule. Okay. At one point, that molecule of H2O is, is what we know it to be a liquid, right? Water. Another time, it's a solid when it freezes. Another time, it's a gas, okay? Isn't that like the Trinity? You get three kind of states of matter, and it's all the one molecule of water. Good example? No. I mean, it's helpful to a degree, right? Not a good example. Why? Well, that's, that's a heresy called modalism, right? That is, though, like, God is at one time Father, and then God is at another time Son, and then God is another time Holy Spirit. But that's not what the Trinity is. The God, the God is Father, Son, Holy Spirit, eternally. Okay, so it's not like gas. Plus, they're not, like, in relation. The gassy state, the liquid state, is not the cause of the, the gassy state. Except for by some other strange examples that I'm thinking of just now. Right? <laughs> so I won't go into it. Huh? Um, but you have to have one that causes the other. Now, um, you have other examples that really aren't all that great. Um, what's another one? Um, well, here's another one that's not bad, but not great. Okay, so I draw a circle. I draw another circle. And I draw another circle. We're making progress. This actually has some patristic sources to it. It's called circumincession. Okay, not bad. How many circles are there? One. One. And three. Okay, so now we're like, we're making progress. You know, and so if we could have the water example where the same substance of water is at the same time liquid solid, and gas, we can make in progress. And that's kind of what we have with the three-circle, one-circle. Okay? It's a bad example in that the three persons aren't, you know, what the, you know, let's see here. It's not like persons are essence, right? Well, actually it is like that, so maybe it's a better example than I thought. You don't have for sure, right, the one circle that would be the father as the cause cause a very, sort of like, an analogous word here, um, the generator of the second circle, and you don't have the first and the second uh, circles being the, the spirators of the third circle. You don't have a relation in between the circles. They're just put on top of each other, so you see one circle. Okay, so that's not great. So most of the examples of the Trinity that we're going to find are like this. And this is good, right? The Trinity is one of those things that tells us we're not making this up. But there is an analogy, or a few analogies, that we've stumbled upon, thanks to great members of our tradition, that help us make progress in understanding the Trinity. Okay. How to get this? The first one we call the psychological analogy. Okay? It has to do with the image of the mind. And you and I 
can have an idea of ourselves, an image of ourselves, a picture of ourselves. If I show you a picture of the group of us, who's the first person you look for? Yourself. Generally. Yeah. And you find yourself in the picture and you're like, what? That's not what I look like. <laughs> what a terrible picture. Who took that picture? Let's take another, right? What is indicated there? Well, what is indicated there is that you have an image of yourself. And some image of you. A picture of yourself, of what you look like, of how you are presentable to the eyes of others. And that image of yourself may or may not be like all that great of an approximation of yourself. Your image can be like not all that accurate. In fact, like my image of myself generally is not that accurate. I think I am a lot better than I actually am. Did you ever hear my Italian dessert thing? People are like Italian desserts, they often look a lot better than they actually are. Okay? Italian desserts, it's not that they're bad, they look good. Italian desserts look good. It's just that they look like they should be better. Okay? <laughs> you tie into them and you eat it and you're like, oh, duh. It's soaked in alcohol, which is good in its own right, but it's terrible with the dessert. There's no sugar in this. Like, what is wrong with this? It looks so good. People are like that. <laughs> People on the outside look like they're awesome. And it's not that they're bad. They're not bad. It's just that they look like they should be better. And then you really get to know them, and you're like, oh, man. <laughs> you are not as good as you look, which is true of all of us, Okay. And then it is even more aggravated when we consider our image of ourselves. Like, I have a terrible, well, not terrible, it's actually too exalted. Like, that's my problem. I think I'm awesome. Okay, so, but now imagine for a second what it looks like to grow in perfection. The more perfect we are, what? The more perfect my image of myself becomes the more I see myself exactly the way I am. Not under-exalted, not over-exalted, but just as I am. In fact, the more perfect, be the more identical. And Bishop Barron gets to this point, and he's quoting St. Thomas Aquinas, and they notice that everything um, you know, has a kind of perfection uh, of able to generate an image of itself. And the more you go up on the level of being, the more perfect that image can become. And it's very helpful, and he goes through this shtick, like you take a rock, and a rock is capable of generation of an image of itself, but not very impressively. You know, take a rock and stick it in mud. That was my mud sound. <laughs> and it leaves a mark. Okay? Take it out, it's left an image, an imprint of itself. Or, as an example, is you take that rock and you throw it through the window. It's going to leave a mark. It's going to leave an image of itself that's going to resemble, more or less, the shape of the rock. And as you march up in the creative order of things, you're going to get things that are more capable of producing a more perfect image of themselves. Think of plants. Now, plants, they can do all the things that rocks can do. They can push them in the mud. 
You could even throw, I mentioned it here, really throw a heart and plant through the tree, or through the window. But plants can also reproduce themselves. Same thing. They can produce another like themselves. That's what plants do. And that's just a plant. We'll go up to that level of animals. They can do all the things that all the things beneath them did, and now they can produce something from within. It comes out just like them. Now go up. You have human beings. You can do all the things, like you can throw me through the window if you want. So after today, many of you are going to want to, right? <laughs> but also, we're capable of producing like ourselves, and the likeness is, is pretty impressive. I love seeing my sister's kids, like there are many visions of, versions of them. It's, like, it's amazing. Well, think about God. Okay, let's just crank up the level of perfection. We've already admitted that the image of ourselves, the more perfect it gets, is the more identical it is. Okay. Well, on the highest uh, level of being, which is God, how perfect is that image? Perfect. Perfect, perfect. And so identical with what it is. So we have identity. That's one of the things we need when we explain the Trinity, is identity. And because it's generated from, because it's an image of, because he's a son of, he's also distinct. And that's the other piece we need to the Trinity, is distinction. Now we have identity and distinction, and we can understand the first two persons of the Trinity. Now we can move forward, and we, we need a third person, right? Oh, again, right? We see this in the level of generation where uh, from the perception of love, like love can become so perfect, right? In nine months, you got to give it a name. But go back to our picture of ourselves, right? I love myself. <laughs> we all do. Some of us love ourselves too much. Some of us love ourselves not enough. But it's an important thing to get right. Why? Because the commandment, the second commandment, is to love our neighbor as ourselves. So there's a precursor, an understanding that you love yourself. So what? So I see myself, I have that image of myself, and from my image of myself, I love myself. Like, I wish good things to myself. And if I have a super exalted image of myself, the problem is that I wish too many good things to myself. And that's pride. Right? If I have an image of myself that is like, sort of under-exalted, okay, kind of falsely humble of myself, oh no, I'm worthless, I'm, you know, I can't do it, I'm just terrible, I'm just horrible, I'm going to be righteous. I mean, I probably won't amount to anything kind of thing. If that's my image of myself, the love of myself will also be imperfect. I won't will good to myself the way that I should. So now, as we grow in perfection, as that image is more perfect, so attuned then is my love. And the love flows from my knowledge of self. And the love that flows from it, it should be in proportion to what I am. 
I don't love myself too much. I don't love myself too little. I love myself for what I am. So my future is like crank up the perfection into the highest level of being. Well, you're gonna give, get a love that is proportional, identical with what is. A love that is identical with what is. We have identity. And because that love is breathed forth from the Father and the image of Himself, the Son, it's also distinct. That love that flows from the Father and the Son, we give a name to. The Holy Spirit. Right? And so the Father and the Son, as they Even breathe, they use the word breathe, right? There's this kind of sigh of love, this, this gaze of love. Ah. That's the spirit. It's so perfect, it's identical with what they are. It's so personal, it has a name. And because it's from the Father and the Son, it is distinct. So we call this the psychological analogy, where the Father generates an image, procession of, of knowledge. He knows himself, and from that knowledge of himself comes an image of himself. He loves, his image he loves himself, and from that love, of his image from that love, that perfect love, the perfect image comes a perfect, perfect love, a perfect product. How about you? So it's identical to what they are. But it's also distinct. And that's exactly what we mean in the Trinity. Yep. So in the um, in the in the gospels when when Jesus says this and his send his Holy Spirit, is that a different Holy Spirit than when Mary was full of the Holy Spirit? Mm. Or, or great question. Was full of the Holy Spirit? Yeah, great and question. And it's going to be the same Holy Spirit, and it's going to get added distinction um, that I generally don't go through, but I will now for your question's sake. Um, because it is helpful. Huh? And so. We make a distinction between the way the Trinity is in itself, or in themselves, I don't know whether you want to emphasize the unity of essence or the distinction of persons, right? So how the Trinity is in itself, and how the Trinity is in our world. Okay? So basically, the question was, like, the spirit that's overshadowing Our Lady um, is that the same spirit then that gets sent by, by the Son, by Christ, um, you know, and the Father, um, at Pentecost? It is the same spirit, right? And there isn't a one-to-one -one correlation between the way the Trinity is in itself and the way the Trinity acts in history. So, um, while it's fitting that you have the Father sending the Son, and the Father and the Son sending the Spirit, and that in the big picture, that is what you have. Right? It doesn't, it's not like a one-to-one -one correlation, because that is what you have in the inside of the Trinity. The Father generates the Son. 
generates an image. We even use terms like that when you're like giving birth to an idea. Huh? It generates generates an image of himself, which is personal, as his son. Okay, um, spitting image of his father. Huh? He's the image of the invisible God. Okay, so he generates the son, and the father and the son together breathe forth the spirit. And there's a kind of parallel to the way they act in, in history, right? It seems right. The father seems to be maybe the one that's active in creation. Um, you know, or the, the Son then comes in His incarnation, and the Spirit comes at Pentecost. That's not exactly right, okay? Because when they when the Trinity acts um, externally, they're always active, and all three persons act. They do, though, act in ways that are appropriate to their person. Okay, so all three existed for all time. Absolutely. And, and they... <clears throat> so now go back. Yeah, they exist for all time. Now go back. In creation, it's not just the Father that's active. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are active in creation. The God creates. God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit creates. And they create, though, appropriately, right? The Father speaks. The Word is through whom all things are. And the Spirit is hovering even over the waters. Okay? They're all present in creation. They're all present from all eternity. And yet, when God creates, each one does something appropriate to his person. Even in the incarnation. Who acts? Well, like the whole Trinity acts. The Father sends the Son. The Spirit overshadows our Lady. But it is the Son who is incarnate. Even Pentecost. Right? Who is active? Oh, the Father and the Son, they're sending the Spirit. The Spirit is made present. Um, but He animates and enlivens and unites people to Christ. The Son. It's a continuation, a perpetuation of Christ's incarnation. Is the Spirit's activity. Right? So they're all active, and they're active appropriately. So... They're all present at creation. Mm -hmm. They're all present at the transfiguration. Sure. But Jesus has to leave in order for the Spirit to come. Mm -hmm. Why can they be together in different parts of the Bible? But in this particular example, there's only be one there at the time. Well, why does Jesus have to suffer on the cross? It seems like by himself. I mean, he cries out. Right. Father, why have you forsaken me? Okay. He's not saying, why, why am I forsaking myself? Mm -hmm. All are good questions. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, why have you abandoned me and the stuff on Christ, we'll get to, so I'm just going to like bracket that. Like, um, it's going to be a combination of, it's not total abandonment, huh? Um, and then, like, we also have to, like, incorporate, uh, quite literally, his human nature, um, which can totally feel all of those feelings. All those are real feelings. <laughs> and yet, he's not totally separated or abandoned by the Father, because of the very thing that you said, like, the Father is God, he is God. He knows that he is God, yeah. right? So he's obviously not abandoned in that way. Huh? Um, and then you read, like, the rest of the psalm, and it's not like, you know, it's... The psalm itself is, doesn't end in like this, like, I'm abandoned, there's nothing. No, the, the psalm itself, it ends in hope. 
And so the quotation of the psalm actually quotes the whole psalm and like invokes like God's saving will that's being made present at that moment. <clears throat> at the same time, because he's both God and man, the feelings of being abandoned can be real. They're not sinful, but they are real. Because a perfect human nature is going to experience all of that perfectly. So going even back to the whole passion, this whole experience of mm-hmm. pain and suffering, mm-hmm. the struggle with you know, I just think of like at Gethsemane when he was praying, let this cup pass. Absolutely. Yes, but not my will, but yours be done. Sure, yeah. Hold on to all of that. Yeah, and <laughs> thanks be to God, because of the incarnation, we can say a lot of seemingly contrary things. Because um, of our human nature. Well, because it is. And yeah. God took on that human nature. Exactly. Closer yeah. to us. Yep, yep. So he can feel, he can experience, he can experience emotions. That's what we witness through reading the Passion and the Gospel. Mm-hmm. You see what it looks like when God becomes man. And how truly connected he is to us. Mm-hmm. 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 So when it comes to, I think that this is the tribal point that I'm trying to make in that um, the way the Trinity is in itself gets nearer to a degree in the way that it acts in our world, but it's not a one-to-one. So the mirror is that the Father sends the Son, and the Father and Son send the Holy Spirit. And that's pretty close, and a close approximation to how things are in the Trinity. But the the fact that he says that if I, you know, the Father and the Advocate, and don't hang on to me because otherwise the Spirit cannot come, um, that is a relatively true thing, right? Um, the visibility, like, so I guess I would say maybe it's more along the lines of what we'll eventually call the visible mission of the Holy Spirit. And that's what's new. It is not the case that the Spirit was not active before Pentecost. Right? We know that. He's spoken through the prophets. I was like, wait, I didn't think he came to Pentecost. How do you speak through the prophets? Well, obviously, it's not a one-to-one correlation of his activity, absolutely, even in this world. And then his, uh, sort of the part where it mirrors, seemingly, what goes on in the life of the Trinity. The coming at Pentecost might be the first appearance of the Spirit, the first um, manifestation of it, where it's visible, but it's not the first activity of the Spirit. The Spirit had been leading people to encounter Christ throughout his ministry. The Spirit had been preparing people for Christ throughout the Old Testament. The Spirit had been speaking through the prophets. The Spirit um, prepares and the Spirit makes present. Uh, the Spirit unifies us with Christ, even before Pentecost. And at the same time, there is a fittingness that you have this kind of beautiful picture in the history of salvation or the economy, we call it, of the Trinity, of the Father sending the Son, and the Son sending, uh, the Father and the Son sending the Spirit. Does that kind of answer your question? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Any other questions? Otherwise, we're, you know, we're close to another break. Why Jesus said the, the only sin that can't be forgiven is the offense to the Holy Spirit. Mm. Um... I read that, it's not just me, I hear it from other people, mm-hmm. um, as 
the limitations that we can put on divine power, right? To doubt God's capacity or his power to forgive sins in a sense. And um, how does that relate to the sin against the Holy Spirit? Um, despair, right? Yeah, I mean, despair, yeah, and the Spirit, um, you know, how is that necessarily, I have to think about it more and reestablish that connection again, like how the despair is primarily a sin against the Holy Spirit. Um, but take the Spirit uh, to be like certainly the one um, that's a, that appropriates kind of the, the forgiveness of sins, right? Um, think of the words of, of, of uh, absolution. God, the, and you get the whole trinity. The whole trinity shows up at your confession. Um, God, the Father of mercies, through the... Uh, Light. Okay, hold on. Like, well, it's not absolution, so maybe it's good that I don't know the words. Uh, God, the Father of mercies, to the death and resurrection of His Son, has sent the Spirit um, among us for the forgiveness of sins. Boom. Right there. Right? God, the Father of mercies, to the death and resurrection of His Son, has... Uh, is, that, is that what it is? Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah that was right. The that was right. Yeah. Anyhow, um, I promise to get it right if you come to confession. Um, <laughs> luckily, we only really need the words, I absolve you, right? In the name of the whatever, you know? Um, so that's what we need. Um, but yeah, God the Father mercies to the death and resurrection of his son. Um, it's not it exactly. Huh. Well, apparently my mind is going. Um, no, but um, like Google will help. Um, but you get the whole Trinity active there, and the Spirit has this role in this forgiveness of sins. And then when you doubt the capacity of God to forgive your sin, you are sinning against the Spirit that was sent for that purpose. And so when you despair of your sins being forgiven, you are sinning against the Holy Spirit, and God will allow Himself to be tied. He will allow Himself to be limited by your doubt. God cannot forgive this. In a sense, your will makes you right. Right? That's why we're forgiven. Right? All you have to do is ask. That's what you have to do. Just ask. Uh, one of the, the Pope Francis's first first audiences, he says, you know, the Holy Spirit never tires of forgiving us. God never tires of forgiving us. We get tired of asking. That's true. <laughs> that is true. And if you stop asking. Well then, God will allow Himself to be tied by your. You're getting tired of asking for forgiveness. Oh, it's the same old sins. Well, you know, God's too busy. People say stuff like this. You know, God is not too busy. <laughs> in fact, He's infinite. You know, He's got He's got all the time in the world. He's used it wisely, and you know, and He's outside of that, right? God can um, keep up with his email. Right, exactly, yeah, exactly. So, anyway, okay, so let's take a bit of a break. Um, if we could do 10 minutes and then we'll come back and do creation. And then that will leave, yeah, man and Jesus Christ next time, that'll be all okay.
page 13. What's that? That's going to add page 13 to the homework. What's that? You're going to add page 13 to the homework. Yep. <laughs> we're going to get there. I think, I think we're ready, guys. Not until yeah. December, though, so we'll begin. <laughs>